Part Two, Chapter Two of the Swoop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Swoop, or How Clarence Saved England, by P. G. Woodhouse. Part Two, Chapter Two. An Important Engagement. Historians, when they come to deal with the opening years of the twentieth century, will probably call this the music-hall age. At the time of the great invasion, the music-halls dominated England. Every town and every suburb had its hall, most of them more than one. The public appetite for sightseeing had to be satisfied somehow, and the music-hall provided the easiest way of doing it. The halls formed a commonplace, on which the celebrity and the ordinary man could meet. If an impulsive gentleman slew his grandmother with a coal-hammer, only a small portion of the public could gaze upon his pleasing features at the old bailey. To enable the rest to enjoy the intellectual treat, it was necessary to engage him, at enormous expense, to appear at a music-hall. There, if he happened to be acquitted, he would come on the stage, preceded by an asthmatic introducer, and beam affably at the public for ten minutes, speaking at intervals in a totally inaudible voice, and then retire, to be followed by some enterprising lady who had endeavoured, unsuccessfully, to solve the problem of living at the rate of ten thousand a year on an income of nothing, or who had performed some other similarly brainy feat. It was not till the middle of September that anyone conceived what one would have thought the obvious idea of offering musical engagements to the invading generals. The first man to think of it was Solly Quayne the rising young agent. Solly was the son of Abraham Cohen, an eminent agent of the Victorian era. His brothers, Abe Kern, Benjamin Colquhoun, Jack Coyne, and Barney Cohen, had gravitated to the city, but Solly had carried on the old business, and was making a big name for himself. It was Solly who had met Blinky Bill Mullins, the prominent sandbagger, as he emerged from his twenty years' retirement at Dartmoor and booked him solid for a thirty-six months lecturing tour on the McGuinness circuit. It was to him, too, that Joe Brown, who could eat eight pounds of raw meat in seven and a quarter minutes, owed his first chance of displaying his gifts to the wider public of the vaudeville stage. The idea of securing the services of the invading generals came to him in a flash. "'Selp me!' he cried. "'I believe they'd go big. Put em on where you like.' Solly was a man of action. Within a minute he was talking to the managing director of the Mammoth Syndicate Halls on the telephone. In five minutes the managing director had agreed to pay Prince Otto of Saxe-Fenig five hundred pounds a week, if he could be prevailed upon to appear. In ten minutes the Grand Duke Vodkakov had been engaged, subject to his approval, at a weekly four hundred and fifty by the Stone Rafferty Circuit. And in a quarter of an hour Solly Quayne, having pushed his way through a mixed crowd of tricky serios and versatile comedians, and patterers who had been waiting to see him for the last hour and a half, was bowling off in a taximeter cab to the Russian lines at Hampstead. General Vodkakov received his visitor civilly, but at first without enthusiasm. There were, it seemed, objections to his becoming an artiste. Would he have to wear a properly bald head and sing songs about wanting people to see his girl? He didn't think he could. He had only sung once in his life, and that was twenty years ago at a bump supper at Moscow University. 
and even then, he confided to Mr. Quain, it had taken a decanter and a half of neat vodka to bring him up to the scratch. The agent ridiculed the idea. "'Why, your grand grace,' he cried, "'there won't be anything of that sort. You ain't going to be starred as a comic. You're a refined lecturer and society monologue artist. How I invaded England, with lights down and the cinematograph going. We can easily fake the pictures.' The Grand Duke made other objection. "'I understand,' he said. "'It is etiquette for musical artists in their spare time to eat, er, fried fish with their fingers. Must I do that? I doubt if I could manage it.' Mr. Cohen once more became the human semaphore. "'Selp me, of course you needn't. All the leading pros eat it with a spoon. Bless you, you can be the refined gentleman on the hall same as anywhere else. Come now, your grand grace, is it a deal?' Four hundred and fifty chinkin' a goblins a week for one haul a night, and press agented at eight hundred and seventy-five. Selp me, Lauder doesn't get it, not in England. The Grand Duke reflected. The invasion has proved more expensive than he had foreseen. The English are proverbially a nation of shopkeepers, and they had put up their prices in all the shops for his special benefit. And he was expected to do such a lot of tipping— Four hundred and fifty a week would come in uncommonly useful. "'Where do I sign?' he asked, extending his hand for the agreement. Five minutes later Mr. Quain was urging his taxi-driver to exceed the speed limit in the direction of Tottenham. End of Part 2 Chapter 2